You are listening to content from Christ Our Hope Anglican Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. For more information, you can find us on the web at ChristOurHopeAnglican.org. And now, here's today's message. The parable that we heard in our gospel reading today is among the more difficult of Jesus' parables to understand. There are actually a few interpretive issues that we could talk about, but at the heart of all of them is, this, is the fact that Jesus seems to be asking us to emulate a man who is dishonest. Within the parable, he's called the dishonest manager. Um, or if you look at it the way that it's written in the Greek, you could even say he's the, the steward of unrighteousness. And this is the person that we are somehow supposed to be like. And so there's this confusion as to what exactly does it mean when Jesus actually commends something about this person. When we look at this man, um, this man was a manager. He was not wealthy himself, but he was in charge of someone else's wealth. And so it was his responsibility to figure out how to use that wealth well, to, to make sure that, his, that the, his master's money was going to make money. He was probably in charge of a lot of lands because wealth in that time would have been associated with land ownership. And so he's supposed to make sure that the right people get hired, that the land is tended well, and that the, what the master has is bringing in wealth. But in some way, he has failed to do so. Given the fact that a little bit later on we find out he's dishonest, it could be that he was skimming a little bit off the top or making deals that benefited him at the expense of his master. It also could just be that he was lazy in some way, that he wasn't doing well with what he was supposed to be doing. It doesn't really tell us exactly what his offense was, but it does tell us that he was called into his master's office because he'd heard these charges against him, and he goes to to him and says, you're going to have to give an account and show me the books, show me what you've done, and you're no longer going to be my manager. And there is a crisis for this man because he is focused on making sure that he is going to be in a secure position. Even though he didn't have a lot of wealth himself, as a manager, he was in a secure position. He had a spot where he had influence. He had plenty of money for himself, and he wants to make sure that that endures. And so he's trying to imagine what it's going to be like when he's lost his job. He's thinking, nobody else is going to take me in as a manager if I have already been let go from one position for dishonesty or for not doing my job well. So what can I do? And he goes through the options in his mind. He goes, well, I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm too proud to beg. So what is left to me? What do I have? And in the first century here, they didn't have security escort you out the door at the very moment that you were fired and throw away your badge and and lock you out of the building. So he says, you know what? I still have access to the accounts, at least for a little while. I can use that for my own benefit. And so he calls in the people that owe his master money. And the first one, he says, how much do you owe? And he says, I owe 100 measures of oil. And he says, make it 50. Now, in this, in coming and having the person come in and ask, how much do you owe? He's kind of making him complicit in the fact that, you know what? I'm going to be making you a deal. I'm going to be coming in here. You know this isn't what's the best for my master's business, but I'm going to help you out here. And this is a lot of money. The, the difference between 100 measures of oil and the way that they measured that and 50 measures of oil is probably like a year's worth of wages. And so he's just cut out a year's worth of wages out of his bill and said kind of a little wink, wink, nod, nod. Now remember me when I need a little bit of help. I've helped you. You can help me. 
The next person comes in, he says, how much do you owe? And he says, 100 measures of wheat. And he says, well, make it 80. And because of the way that things were measured, this sounds when we're reading it like maybe it's a smaller amount, but really this is probably even three or four amount times the amount that was originally forgiven for the oil. And so he's, again, cutting the bill by a huge amount. It's a, it's a significant decrease in what is owed. And again, he's getting the person to come in, state, how much do you owe? Here, I'm going to help you and make it less. And he's doing this. He does it with the explicit idea that if I do this, then when I get thrown out onto the streets, I can go up to these people and say, hey, I helped you out back there. Can you help me out? That I can get favor for them. And so there's this moment in the parable that is actually really surprising, which happens in a lot of Jesus' parables. It's a startling moment, right? Where Jesus call, or the, the manager, uh, the, the master calls in that manager, and we're expecting something to happen like, you unworthy servant, how could you have done this? I'm going to destroy you forever. And instead, the master looks at him and says, good job. That was clever. You did well. Use what you had to get your goal. And Jesus switches out of the parable to talking to his disciples, and he says that he was commended for his shrewdness, and he says that the people of this world are more shrewd than the sons of light. And there's a sense in which you are supposed to be like that too. To understand a little bit of what's going on, I think it actually helps to look at a contemporary example I'm going to talk a little bit about Lance Armstrong. So, if you follow sports at all, then you know that in the late 90s and early 2000s, Lance Armstrong was a phenomenon. He did something absolutely amazing, which he won the Tour de France seven times in a row. That is incredible. But even more incredible than that, he got Americans to care about cycling. Um, and the sport that basically was never on the radar for most Americans, unless you just were somebody that was into it as a health exercise, suddenly every year when the Tour de France came around, people were tuned in to what was going to happen. And it was this amazing story of this American man coming in and continually winning, dominating over the competition to be able to win this most prestigious cycling race over and over and over. And it wasn't just that he was an incredible athlete. There was also the story that he had to go with it, that he had before for the years where he was winning the Tour de France, been diagnosed with cancer in a way that his doctor apparently told him that he had about a 20 to 50% chance to survive. And yet when the doctor was interviewed later, he said, really, I just told him that to give him hope. He had like a 0% chance of survival because it was metastasized throughout his body. He had lesions on his brain. He should not have survived this. And not only did he survive, he came back and was dominating his sport. And when he retired initially, after winning the race seven times in a row, he went out on top and he had books that were out. People wanted to be like Lance Armstrong. People looked at him as a model, as someone to aspire to. The level of determination, the tenacity, the, the overcoming all the trials that he had come. And it was amazing. And then years later, he went back into the sport and he continued to be in the news until the time where there was they found out that he had been, his entire time when he's winning those races, he'd been cheating. He'd been 
doping with EPO and they'd had all sorts of this incredible system that he was in charge of, of how they could get chemicals to him on the race that were not detectable with the technology of that time, but they still had samples frozen from the period and now the, te the detection technology had gotten better and they were able to go back in those to those previous samples and they were able to say, you know what, he was cheating the whole time. And initially he denied it and denied it and tried to destroy people's careers over the accusations until finally one day he said, you know what, I can't get away from it, so I'll just admit to it. And this person who had been an idol for so many fell from grace. And he was despised by many. And yet, I would not tell someone to look at Lance Armstrong's life and go be like Lance Armstrong. He's not a man to admire. And yet, the determination, the tenacity, the single-minded dedication to a cause, even in the way that he put the cheating around him to, to work, where he kept a team organized and kept everybody quiet for a decade, where nobody gave away what he had been doing. There is something to admire about his, his single-mindedness, his dedication to the cause that he had. That doesn't mean that he was a good man to do this, but there is still something about what he did that is still worthy of praise. And it's the same way in the parable of this dishonest manager. Jesus is not saying to look at the dishonest manager as a man to emulate in all aspects of his life. He is commending him for one specific trait that he showed in this story. He was shrewd. And he says, you too should be shrewd. Now, partly because of this story and other ways that we use it, we kind of have a negative connotation around the word shrewd. Is that it kind of, we kind of associate it when we're reading the story with the dishonesty that he had. But in the first century, the idea of being shrewd is kind of like the idea of being cunning. It's the idea of being intelligent. It's the idea of making a decisive judgment. In fact, if you look in the dictionary, that's what it will say today, is that being shrewd is the ability to make good judgments, decisive judgments in a, situ in a situation. Being shrewd does not necessarily mean being dishonest. So when we look at the story, we ask, how did this dishonest manager express and show that he was shrewd? I think there are three things that, that stick out in this story about how he showed that he was shrewd. The first is that he was clear about what his goals were. He understood that his goal was to make sure that he was going to have some wealth, that he was going to have money on his side, that he was going to have some friends in high places. And he knew that that was what he needed because he said, I'm, uh, I need to think about what comes next. How am I going to make sure that I'm going to be okay financially after I lose this position? The second aspect is that he gave a very honest assessment of his own strengths and weaknesses. He looked at himself and he said, I'm not strong. I'm not willing to beg. I'm too ashamed. I don't have that kind of humility or that kind of courage. But I do still have a little bit of influence. I've got access to something of value. So he had clear goals he understood his strengths and weaknesses, and then he took decisive action. He didn't just sit around and go, woe is me. He didn't say, become paralyzed by his situation. He moved in that moment and took decisive action in order to be able to secure for himself a future.
And this is the aspect of what Jesus is commending to us. Can we set clear goals? Can we understand our strengths and our weaknesses? Can we take decisive action after we've made that assessment? Now, at issue here, at the heart of this parable, is that the reason that this person moved towards dishonesty was because his goals were poor. In fact, this is one of the things that Jesus comes after this. He says, this is why he goes and says, you cannot serve both God and money. You can't have two masters. What's, what he's saying in this is, what is your goal? If you set your goal towards wealth, if you think your goal is to make money, and that virtue will sort of come along in its wake. That if you just make money, then that will be good for you and good for other people. You're misguided and mistaken. If you set making money as your goal, then it will lead you astray. So what is your goal? Your goal is to serve God. Your goal is to pursue Him above all else. At our church, we have our mission statement that's on the front of our bulletins. And it says that what we are here to do is we gather around the table that Christ has prepared in order to share the hope that we have with him, in him with one another and with our neighbor. This is our goal as a body. And we have tried to set this goal because it is a gospel-oriented goal. It is a goal that we hope leads us into a way of walking in a pleasing way with God. We gather around the table as an essential part of our goal because we remember that he has formed us into a people. We are the church. We are his people. This building and space is not a church. The activity that we're doing right now is not church. We don't come to church. We come to be the church. We are the church. And we remember that, and that is why we gather. It's why we gather here on Sunday mornings. It's why we gather to worship. It's why we gather in people's homes. It's why small groups are something that we emphasize in our church. It's why we encourage people to get together throughout the week is because we are the people of God and we gather. It's fundamental to who we are in obedience to Christ. But we don't just gather just to get together because it's a fun social club. We gather to share the hope that we have in Christ. We gather around the table that he has prepared to share the hope we have in him. We remember that we don't come here because we're better. We don't come here because of anything that is ours. We come here because of God's mercy, that he has drawn us together as his people. And we share the hope of the gospel that, yes, we are sinners, but God has saved us through what Jesus has done, through his death and his resurrection. And we proclaim that to one another and remember that that is the most important thing about us. Because the world has all sort of competing measures of our identity, and we gather and we remind each other we're here because of the hope we have in God. We praise because of the hope we have in God, because of what He has done for us in Christ. And that hope is not just for us. We are also called to go out and share it. And so we have this moment where we say we share this hope with our neighbors as well. We invite them into this space, but we also go out to the spaces that they are. We invite them into our homes. We speak to people. We share about what God has done for us because the hope that we have is so great. We have set our aim. We have set our goal. And we consider the resources that we have. By the way these things are measured, we are not a particularly large church. 
We don't have some gigantic building that we can offer to others. That's okay, yeah. <laughs> Amens are welcome. I was, I was going to my daughter's uh, school for... Um, I was going to my daughter's school for uh, parent-teacher conferences last week. And they, their school is not a Christian school, but they rent space from a church. And so walking through parts of it, there's, they have the church, they have a really huge church building. And they've also got like all these signs and things up where they've done a really great job with graphic design. And like, there's just a beautiful space. And, and what they, I go, man, we don't have that. Sometimes I feel, like, I feel bad that I don't have that as a church. I like, don't have a graphic designer on staff. Um, <laughs> but it's okay to know that I don't have that. Because I can also take stock of what I do have. I have the Holy Spirit among us. We have the gospel that has been given to us. We have the good news that has formed within us a genuine love for one another. We have a group of people who are generous, who are filled with integrity and a commitment to the gospel who care about beauty, who are hospitable to everyone who walks through the doors. And when we look at what Jesus says, he says that you may be entrusted with smaller things like wealth, like money, so that maybe one day you can have the greater things. We don't have a ton of the smaller things. We have enough. God has provided enough for us but we are filled abundantly with the greater things. We have been given so much. And sometimes it's easy to get caught up and look at the world's measures of how successful are you being? What do you have? And we go by the world's measures, maybe we're not doing fantastic. But it's not the world's measures that we care about. It's God's measure. And we are filled to abundance with gifts that he has given. And the question is, what are we going to do with it? Are we going to take decisive action using the gifts that he has given, using who we are as a people for the sake of the kingdom? Because that's the goal that he's given to this to his disciples. He said, don't be really thinking about hoarding wealth. Don't be thinking about money. Instead, be thinking about preparing for yourselves eternal dwellings. Use the unrighteous wealth that you have. Use the money that you have for a greater purpose. It's not the end in itself. And so are we fulfilling the purpose that God has given us? We fulfill the purpose when we gather, when we worship, when we praise. We fulfill the purpose when we love our neighbor, when we serve others in the name of Christ so that we can share the hope that we have in him. Are we doing that well? That's the question that this parable puts before us. Are we shrewd? Do we understand our goals and what we've been given and are we using them for the sake of God, for the sake of the things of heaven?
In many ways, I think as a body, we are. In many ways, we are doing well. In other ways, there's things that we could do better. And that's part of making an honest assessment here, is that we look and we say, hey, you know what? We could, in some ways, be loving our neighbors better. We could be serving others more faithfully. We could maybe share that good news that God has given us and make sure that we're inviting others to come and know the gospel and the hope that we have. But the good news, again, is that we have the gospel as one of our gifts. And so if we find a place that we are lacking, we repent. We confess to God our shortcoming and our sin. And we turn to him and we we go out with these gifts we have been given and we step out and we obey, seeking after the things of of the kingdom of heaven seeking to be obedient to what God has given. And of course, the standard that I have applied to our church as a body applies to every single one of us as individuals as well. What is your goal? What does your life indicate is your goal? What's the purpose that you have set before you that dictates what you do every day, the rhythms that you have when you wake up and when you go to bed, the way that you do your work, the way that you spend your money? What's your goal that you have? Is it a good one? Is it good by God's standards? If it is not, repent. Focus on the goal that God has set before you. To be a disciple of Jesus and to make disciples of Jesus. What do you have? Some of you have wealth. Some of you don't. But all of you have the gift of the Holy Spirit if you are following after Jesus Christ. If you are baptized in his name, if you are obedient to him, the gift of the Holy Spirit is far greater than any money that he could entrust you with. Are you using the gifts that he has given you for his purposes? Are you taking an honest assessment of what you have? Do you understand what you have? If you don't, ask someone to help you figure it out. Speak to someone who is mature in the faith and ask them to help you understand what gifts God has given you so that you can use them well. And are you taking decisive action? Do you sit back and say, well, if only I had that, then I would, then I would do something. If I had more time, if I had more money, then I would do something for the kingdom. Or do you use what you've been given and use it well? And if the answer is no, again, remember the gospel. It always comes back to the gospel. I had someone actually who missed the the sermon last week. They asked their family member what I preached about. And they said, well, Jeremy preached about sin and about, uh, about the need for Jesus and about how Jesus died for us. And basically he preached the gospel. Um, (laughs) And, and the person who missed the sermon said, well, that's what he preaches every week. Um, and I couldn't help but think that and, and just think, may it always be so. May we remember that this is what we have, that we have the gospel. And again and again, we are called back to repentance. We are called back to confession. We are called to turn away from our sin and head to God and to act with decisive action using the gifts that he has given us for the sake of his kingdom. And so if there is a way in which you have not done that, repent and turn to him. 
And if you have done that, know that at the end, you too will be called to account before your master. And what we are looking for is a commendation, not just about our shrewdness, but his ability to look at our lives and to say, well done, my good and faithful servant. May it be so. This sermon is an audio ministry from Christ Our Hope Anglican Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. If you are in the area and would like to learn more about how you can worship with us in person or online, please visit us on the web at www.christourhopeanglican.org.